1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of a fascinating book published by the University of Illinois Press titled The Republic Will Be Kept Clean How Settler Colonial Violence Shaped Anti Left Repression. This book examines the long, in fact, longer than I had realized, relationship between the United States' colonizing wars. And it's pretty intense anti-communism, anti-leftism, anti-anarchy, anti anti really quite a lot of things. Um, The book very helpfully not only excavates the histories of both of these things, but also shows just how clearly they're tied together throughout. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author, Tariq Khan, to the podcast. Tariq, thank you so much for being here.
2: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Before we get into your book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining what brought you to write this?
2: Uh, sure. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm uh, as you said, I'm Tari Khan. I am currently uh, working as a lecturer at Yale, um, teaching courses on uh, racism and colonial power and uh, things like that, uh, specifically designed for psychology students, um, although I am a historian. um And uh, in terms of, like, what got me uh, to write this book, so this actually started um, almost 20 years ago that I started thinking down these lines. Um, uh, You know, I was in the United States Air Force, and I, you know, I came out of the Air Force and got directly sort of involved in uh, anti-war organizing. Um, Some of my experiences in the military sort of led me um, to positions uh, that were very critical of militarism and and uh, US Empire um, and uh, the in the sort of post 9/11 atmosphere um, you know I got out of the Air Force George W. Bush was president of the United States and um, the jingoism and just this you know this sort of hyper patriotism was just at a at a peak and with all of that, Came um, a lot of uh, anti-Muslim um, uh, bigotry, hatred, um, and and it was racialized. So, like you know, Islam is not a is not a race. It's a religion. People all over the world are are Muslim. All you know, people who speak all kinds of different languages and ethnicities and different cultures are Muslim. But in the United States, it became um, a racialized category. So, like there were like a number of hate crimes. Uh, committed against people who were not Muslims, but just people thought they were Muslims. So, like for example, a number of uh, Sikhs, um, you know, there were Sikh temples were attacked. People thought they were Muslims, and they did vandalism, and even there was even um, acts of murderous violence committed against Sikhs, mass shootings, things like that. Um, and it was it was basically like people who sort of looked like they might be from South Asia or the Middle East. Um, were just sort of racialized as muslim and being treated kind of as enemies and and one of the one of these crimes that really stood out to me had happened in um in the subway system in new york in new york city um and a man was just standing waiting for the for the subway um, and he was from India. He was not Muslim, but uh, a woman thought he would just, just by looking at him, thought he was Muslim and she ran up and just shoved him out onto the tracks in front of a train An oncoming train uh, killed him. So basically she just murdered this guy. And, um, uh, and after she got caught, her justification was, you know, I've been beating them up ever since they attacked us on 9-11 Um, and there were a lot of these kinds of incidences happening and, and it was all being framed as like within this discourse of civilization versus savagery. So like the one in the subway stood out to me in particular because, um, shortly before that there were these ads put up all over in the New York city subways and in Washington, DC, which is, um, where the area where I lived, um, that said, uh, something like, um, in the war of the civilized man versus savagery uh support the civilized man um and these were like anti anti palestine ads basically um and uh the the Council on American Islamic Relations I remember at that time had tried to talk to the um subway authorities like this is hate speech it's going to lead to violence um you know hate speech and and violence always go hand in hand hate speech is never just speech it always accompanies violence And sure enough, you had all of these incidences, such as the one I just mentioned, in the very place where these ads were. Um, And that just got me thinking along about like this discourse of civilization versus savagery. You saw like the talking heads on the news constantly talking in those terms. And I thought that was a real weird way of talking, you know, civilization versus savagery. Um, And of course, the savages were like my family were the ones who were lumped in with like this, you know, the people who were... You know, savagery, um, and so uh, that's what, how it started. Was you know, I was an undergraduate at the time, and I was just really interested in trying to study like where do where does this come from, this discourse of civilization versus savagery, um, and then that sort of led me into what eventually you know years later would become the project that became this book.
0: Mm understanding that backstory, having read the book, um, I think is very helpful context and very um, understandable context. Having read the book, it's like, yep, okay, that makes a lot of sense why you would end up with a book like this. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of ways to ask you to tell us about the book, but I'm going to go for kind of, I guess, the traditional historical method of going chronologically. Um, so that the obvious first question then is, if you're going to be anti-something, that kind of has to start at some point, um, it's it's learnt behaviour, it's taught behaviour, as you were just talking about in terms of hate speech. So, when and how do we see anti-communism, sort of defined broadly, begin to show up in the United States?
2: Yes, and so um, that actually started like earlier than I would have expected to to see it. And... Yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> I learned loads from this bit of the book.
2: Yeah. Um, so uh as far as like modern anti like as we you know when we talk about anti communism i mean you could you could go you know hundreds of years back to just sort of um the um you know the invention of of private property and things like that but in terms of like people using you know the word communism in the way that we hear it used today um that um i i kind of got interested in um like when does when do we first hear like lawmakers using explicitly anti-communist rhetoric as like a as like a tool um to convince people to support their policies so basically when did they start you know raising the specter of communism as like you know we need to support this policies otherwise you know it's going to be communism um and i first see that um In the 1840s in terms of using the word communism and so it's very shortly after uh, a movement starts to emerge that calls itself communism so like you know in germany that you know we had socialism i talk about it a little bit in the book like the socialism was already kind of in the lexicon um since the early 19th century with all of these different sort of utopian uh social experiments you had like owenite communities and um, and all, you know, all these different kinds of, you know, they, they weren't, they largely were not, um, uh, confronting the system, but they were largely like sort of going out, you know, outside of the, the towns and cities and trying to sort of carve out their own space, you know, we'll get a bunch of land out there and see if we can build a community. It was like that. So it wasn't really like, uh, uh, threatening the system directly. It was, it was more of like a dropout of society rather than trying to change society type of, of movement. Um. And, uh, but then, you know, in the 1840s, you started to have like, you know, growing from like the, what they called the working men's movements in Europe. Um, in spite of the fact that there were many women involved, they called it the working men's movements, um, And uh, it was in the working men's movement that you started to have, you know, people who called themselves communists using the word communist. You had, especially in Germany, you had people like August Becker. And, you know, this is before Karl Marx, you know, published, you know, the Communist Manifesto or any, you know, any of the things he's known for, you know, writing books like uh, with titles like, you know, what do the communists want? And so the, the word was out there. Uh, in the 1840s, and people in the United States would have been exposed to this through the working men's newspapers as well as some of the mainstream uh, newspapers um, that reported on the activities of what's going on. And so very shortly after um, the word communism sort of enters the lexicon in the 1840s, that's when you first see uh, uh, U.S. um, lawmakers Start using it in Congress. So I, I went back to the Congressional Record, and I found that like the first people using it, they they actually weren't using it against like the labor movement or even against like European radicals or what you would have expected to see. It was actually the it was um, Southerners, pro-slavery Southerners, who uh, were using um, anti-communist rhetoric uh, to convince Congress to expand the institution of slavery into these newly acquired, acquired territories. So this is just after the Treaty of Guadalupe uh, Hidalgo in the United States, you know, gets over 500,000 square miles of Mexican and indigenous territories that are now part of the United States. And so the debate raging in Congress is, what are we going to do with all these new territories? And the, the Southerners uh, were really hell-bent on... Um, that with these new territories need to allow slavery, and so these uh, pro-slavery um, legislature legislators were saying, you know, this is the best defense we have against communism is slavery, and so it's it's very interesting because it's it's really very shortly after like. Um, you know you you start to hear you know Karl Marx is you know giving talks and and writing articles about uh you know the the interests of capital and the interests of labor are diametrically opposed in all of this and you you it, and you uh have some of these southerners sort of seizing on that notion and they kind of take uh what nowadays we might consider like marxist notions um and they sort of twist them to make them into these pro-slavery arguments. So like one of the arguments that you see in, in Congress is, um, you know, in the, in the South, we don't, have, um, we don't have conflict between capital and labor because enslavers own both. And so we have harmony in our economic system. And so if, if we expand slavery into the newest, new states, that will defend us from communist movements arising because we won't have conflict between capital and labor like you do in these Northern cities. Um, And so that was kind of interesting that it was these pro-slavery advocates who were basically using anti-communism as an argument against um, the abolitionists. Uh, And then you also see it, uh, these Northern um, US Indian agents. So people who were uh, charged with making the lands west of the Mississippi safe for settler colonization, their job was basically like you know get the Indians in line um, and they were having a really hard time with uh, specifically with the Dakota Sioux I write about um, they they say like the Dakota Sioux they have they have too much democracy, too much freedom and it's impossible for us to, like, manipulate them. So, like, one of the tactics that U.S. Indian agents would use, and you still see, actually, um, U.S. the U.S. still uses this tactic today in places like Afghanistan. I mean, they tried it in Vietnam. I mean, this is sort of a tried-and-true uh, imperialist tactic where you you find somebody who you can kind of, from the population of the colonized, who you can kind of, make into a leader and mold them and use them to control the rest of the population. Um, so like you put your guy into power and then you use him to like as the way to control the people. Um, and so they were trying that with indigenous groups in North America and they say, you know, that it's not working with these chiefs because the chiefs aren't able to do anything that goes against the popular feeling. Um, they bring all of these other braves with them to all the meetings and they make sure that the chief doesn't make any decision binding on the people that goes against what the people want. Basically, they're saying there's too much democracy and we can't manipulate them. And they, and they said, you know, all of the kinds of things that they use, like so much of the control tactics they use were related to private property, right? You have people in debt and things like that and you use debt and you use uh, the legal system, And all of these kinds of things to control people and keep them weak. And they were like, the Dakota Sioux, they don't have debt. They don't have private property. And yet they have all of this democracy and we can't control them because of it. And they um, described that sort of political and economic system where they have all of this freedom and democracy as their system of communism. And you know that was like one thousand, eight hundred and fifty, where they're they're describing the Dakota Sioux as their system of communism, Um, and uh, and then they use that as as uh, they put that into the context of civilization versus savagery. So they say, you know, we're we're trying to civilize them, but they can't be civilized because their system of communism makes it impossible to civilize them. And then that justified just genocidal uh, campaigns. And so I talk about how like that rhetoric um, was sort of a justification for genocidal campaigns. And so this is where the first instances I'm finding of like anti-communist rhetoric as we know it today being used in the, by Congress members. Um, it's against the anti-slavery movement and it's against indigenous resistance to colonization.
0: Which is not really where I expected to find that language. So I'm really I think that's a huge contribution of the book in and of itself to extend that back before what we might think. Um, And I'm going to my next question sounds like I'm jumping to something else. It sounds like I'm asking you something completely unrelated. I think your answer is going to prove that assumption wrong, though. The other two. Another thing that we might have an incorrect historical um, timeline for is the idea of a red menace, a fear of something tarred with the color red, kind of standing in for communism. I, for one, certainly first heard that phrase for the Soviet Union, maybe China. And yet, uh, just like with the previous question, the history goes back a lot further than we might think. Can you tell us about what was the first sort of thing to be talked about as a red menace?
2: Sure. So um, again, this, you know, all uh, the, you know, it's in the title, you know, settler colonial violence, Um, but that's, you know, one of the, um, one of the premises of the book where I'm, I'm drawing a lot from indigenous studies scholars who have been saying for decades that, um, you know, when you look at U.S. history, you have to recognize uh, settler colonialism as a, central foundational uh central foundational sort of framework of uh in from which u.s history uh unfolds um and you know that's often in the way we teach u.s history it's you know we Oftentimes, we don't even use the term settler colonialism. And I mean, I remember uh, when, you know, back in the day when I was uh, teaching assistants for uh, the, you know, U.S. since 1877 course. And we had a textbook that I think was better than most textbooks I've seen. You know, they had some really good historians who worked on that textbook. And yet it still just had like it had a section that it calls Westward Expansion and it's like oh some unfortunate things happen in this westward expansion period but then it gets back to this like triumphant story of like forging this multi racial democracy and you know it's it's all sort of like this this story of progress towards um you know towards democracy and freedom and the inclusion of more and more people um and then there's like just a little side track of you know westward expansion some bad stuff happened Um, But, you know, from indigenous studies scholars tell us like that, that that's not a side story. Settler colonialism is a central framework uh, in which these these uh, U.S. history happens. And we have to take that seriously. And so when I, you know, I came uh, into approaching this book, I um, was reading a lot of those uh, indigenous studies scholars. And I and I thought that they uh, were correct and that we have to look at settler colonialism as this uh, central framework. Um, and when we do that, the periodization of anti-communism changes and right. It goes further back. And and, and to your question about like a red menace, then um, you know, it's, you know, most people who've written histories of anti-communism, there's a lot of great histories and I'm not, uh, you know, criticizing these histories. Um, there's some great books that, you know, I cite in, in my book that are, you know, um, that kind of talk about like the what we call the first red scare, or that you know usually they focus on the post world War two period with the cold war uh some of them will go back to you Know the period of the first Red Scare, about you know 1917 to 1921, around that period, um, where there was a lot of deportations and, and things like that. Um, some people who are you know in labor studies will say, Yeah, actually, you got to go back to Haymarket in the 1880s, and then others, other people will say, Well, actually, you got to go back to the 1870s, uh, with the railroad uprising, um, and uh. With uh, the Paris Commune, even though that was in Europe, it uh, really alarmed some of the u s. Uh, leaders. Um and that was sort of put them in this state of like heightened uh, sort of a heightened red scare kind of uh, posture. Um, but when you see settler colonialism as this uh, central uh, this central framework uh, for United States history, it actually goes back even further to some of the things I already mentioned about the anti-slavery movement and about, um, us Indian agents, you know, describing the Dakota Sioux as, you know, system of communism. Um, and so, and, uh, so some of the language actually, um, I, I talk a lot about sort of the slippery usage of this term red. Um, and so how, right, like the communists, you know, were reds, right? Because they carry the red flag and everything like that. But the um, indigenous groups were also reds. And we kind of see those as like different uh, different ways of using the term. We're like, well, it's the same word, but they're using it differently. But I'm actually arguing that um, th- there's, there's, the line between those two usages are actually pretty blurry. Um and so like the first sort of red menace, menace you know, the first communists, the first people who they're trying to eliminate, who they're calling communists are indigenous groups. And they're using the word communism to describe their their political and economic system. And they're saying their communism is what makes them savage. Um, and then they're using that as a justification for these elimination uh, of these just violent sort of genocidal um, programs. And so that's what I argue is sort of like their first sort of red menace in the context of anti-communism is indigenous groups. And then later you'll see like police officers and and people will kind of insert themselves into that narrative when in the 1870s and 1880s, when there are anarchists and socialists um, in U.S. industrial centers organizing in the labor movement, the police will very explicitly tr- sort of insert themselves into that same narrative of like, we're the heroic frontier Indian killers and the anarchists and the socialist are the reds, and we're saving civilization by eliminating them.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Hmm. So very fuzzy, um, kind of the idea of having those two words, the same word, but mean different things um, really doesn't hold up necessarily. Um, in a similar sense, you draw a much more direct line than I think we might traditionally think of between the violence used against Indigenous peoples and the police violence against um, leftist activists. Can you help us kind of, can you demonstrate how this line is actually um, pretty direct, thinking through some of the tactics and methods used in both of these sets of repression?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's interesting that uh, a lot of labor history scholars, you know, haven't really looked at it this way because in the, in the sources, the police themselves are very explicit about that we're based that they are using, uh, Indian, uh, Indian elimination techniques. Like they're proud of it. Um, you know, they, they in the police literature, they very openly are like, yeah, we directly come from like these frontier Lynch mobs. <laughs> um, they're not, they're not, they're very honest about what their origins are. Um, and uh, so like uh, some of the sources I used were like, um, uh, you know, uh, police captain Michael Shaq, who was uh, wrote this influential book, very long title. The, the short title is just Anarchy and Anarchist. Um, and it's supposed to be like this history of uh, of uh, socialism and anarchism and nihilism, just sort of radical left movements in general. Um, and then and then it's uh it's basically a heroic narrative of how the police saved the united states from the communists or from the anarchists um and uh captain shack very uh and 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 by the way captain shack's book was used by uh the early criminologists as one of their main sources um on uh political crime so uh, so it was a pretty influential book, like uh, Lombroso, for example, like cites Captain Shaq as like his main source uh, in his um, article on um, the physiognomy of, of the anarchist. You know, he was doing phrenology, skull science. Um uh, on anarchists and uh, to, to pathologize and, and criminalize anarchists. And he was using Captain Shack's book as his source. And Captain Shack's book was just thoroughly this sort of cowboys and Indians narrative of, you know, the police are the, you know, the heroes on the frontier uh, and the anarchists are the, the so-called Reds. And there's, there's uh, passages in Shaq's book where he's using this term Reds and it's not clear who he's referring to because he'll he'll say like, you know, the anarchists are like, you know, uh, murderous, you know, Comanches on the plains uh, surrounding the cabin of a helpless settler. Um, and then he'll switch back to talking, you know, he'll switch back and forth to talking about indigenous groups or really white imagination of indigenous groups um, and talking about... Um, Sort of uh the respectable society's imagination about working class radicals and and he'll switch back and forth and he'll he's using the term reds and there's some sections where it's like which which reds is he talking about because he's using um, the the word in a really slippery way like that and then um, another one of the sources is uh, Um, The History of the Chicago Police, which was just a propaganda book that the Chicago Police Department put out itself after Haymarket. You know, there was a sort of public relations crisis, all this international attention on the police. Um, And so they were putting these books out to kind of um, restore faith in the police and one of the ways they did that one of the ways they tried to bolster the image of policing was by putting the police into this old sort of frontier cowboys and indians narrative and so but in history of the chicago police they're very explicitly just say you know this is the chicago police department and they're talking about what their origins are and they say yeah our origins are for dearborn which was this army base that they built for the express purpose of exterminating indigenous people from the region. Um, and so they very explicitly are like, yeah, we we come from Indian killers, and we're continuing in that tradition when we're going after these wild, you know, these wild uh, tribal foreigners who have, you know, invaded U.S. cities.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty direct link in their own words, really. Um, so important that we remember that um, today. Continuing to move chronologically through the book, uh, at least a little bit, um, can you tell us about why you consider 1877 to be a turning point in this particular history?
2: Sure. So like two main reasons I see uh, 1877 as a turning point. So um, it, in one way, it was a turning point for the labor movement in that um a lot of uh, people who were sort of the fringes of of the labor movement, you know, the anarchists, the socialists, the radicals, they were always kind of, you know, the, the U.S., what they call the working men's movement uh, was pretty uh, tame compared to um, working men's movements in, in some parts of Europe. Um, you know, they weren't they weren't talking about like radical system change. They were largely running candidates for office uh, and and trying to push reforms to make sort of the system more fair, you know, better wages, better hours, um, but not, they weren't talking about like, we need to end capitalism uh, or anything like that. They were just like, we just need to like make some reforms so that, so that, you know, workers have a little bit better deal. Um, But uh, 1877, um, uh, kind of changed a lot of that and it and it came after years of economic downturn um right so we you know where the united states was in this in the midst of this economic crisis and there was just mass unemployment Uh, a lot of people who were employed you know they were maybe employed for like half of the year right you find a job over here for a month and then you go work on this other place for you know a couple of weeks but people didn't really have security any kind of economic security and uh it didn't look like things were going to be getting better anytime soon um and then in, in the railroads there were just a number of wage cuts so people were already in really bad position and they just kept cutting their wages to the degree where it was like they couldn't even afford to buy like bread like that was and so um, and so the, and the, the mainstream sort of labor organizations uh, weren't really tapped into the level of discontent that there was. Um, and so the, the 1877 uprisings really happened independent of the working men's um party and the working men's movements leadership and it was these were wildcat strikes these weren't strikes that the sort of official labor organizations coordinated but these were something that just rank and file workers did on their own without a formal leadership structure And it just spread. It really resonated to just several states. And it turned into just not just a strike, but full uprisings. In some cities like St. Louis, there was a general strike where um, a lot of the industries went on strike in support um, and, uh, you know, kind of shut down the city. And, you know, and so uh, but the violence to put down that strike was so severe that it really changed a lot of. Uh, a lot of people's a lot of working class people's idea of what the united states is and so people who had previously been calling for reform became radicals even some of the leaders of the working men's movement so albert parsons for example was uh you know we know him as an anarchist but he actually was relatively reformist um you know he started as a in republican politics um and then he sort of gravitated to the working men's party. And even during the strike, he was giving speeches telling people, you know, not to not to rise up and destroy company property, but to vote for working men's party candidates and things like that. But after seeing just the way the state reacted, um, that really changed. I mean, he, I, you, I just use him as an example, but it, I think he was emblematic of a larger trend that um, people really... Uh, were changing their minds about what the United States is and the lengths they just saw the lengths the state would go to uphold these systems of inequality. And so for the working class, it was a turning point. Um, and it opened up the door for like, uh, more radical movements to kind of take a uh, gain a footing. So people who were sort of marginal in the movement, uh, marginal radicals for a short time, they became like, um, the most relevant uh, labor leaders um, you know anarchists, socialists people who the w- leaders of the you know the the more mainstream unions you know they thought they were crazy but those were the people who uh, kind of tapped into what ordinary people were feeling and so it was a turning point in, in that sense but it was also a turning point for the states so um, there was it. Uh, I used John Hay as an example um, during the railroad strike. He was just aghast that the state was not able to contain this, uh, this workers' uprising. And uh, him and a lot of other people who were sort of representatives of, um, you know, the capitalist class, a lot of the big industrialists of the time were just like, why 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 are we unable to uh put down this uprising it's going on for months and um uh and so it became uh an a uh, justification to greatly increase the size and scope of uh uh the forces of repression, the military, the police, um, they're like, you know, they, they're unable to handle this. So we just need, we got to strengthen the police. We have to strengthen um, the military. We have, you know, they're complaining that, you know, all of our... All of our best troops are out on the frontier, you know, killing Indians. And meanwhile, we have these wild savages in our cities and nobody can deal with them. And we're sending in these uh, local local militias. But the local militias, a lot of them were in in solidarity with the strikers. So sometimes the militia would join the strike. Sometimes the militia would refuse to shoot at the strikers. Um, and so uh, it it changed the... And it also kind of... A lot of members of the ruling class saw this type of class conflict as uh, something that happens in Europe, in the, you know, backwards, repressive, autocratic Europe. They have this kind of stuff because people don't have freedom. But here in democratic America um, you know, we have, you know, people have high wages and we have freedom and democracy and voting and all of this. And so we, we don't have this kind of conflict. But uh, the uprisings of 1877 um, really changed their minds about that. And they, the ruling class uh, and the industrialists and all of these people really uh, uh, increased the, their level of uh, violence that they would use against people within the United States. And, and what they turned to, because the, the violence that they knew was uh, so-called frontier violence. It was the what we call the, the Indian Wars. That's where they learned about how do you control and contain people? How do you put down uh, insurgencies? They learned all of that through settler colonial violence. And so that was sort of became their template For how they would deal with the so-called labor problem was they would kind of take these uh, Indian War tactics and ways of thinking and then apply them to uprisings, these multiracial uprisings of poor people within the United States. And also use the exact same weapons, so like artillery and Gatling guns and the very same weapons they used for Indian War uh, what they call the Indian Wars. It's not a great term, the Indian Wars. These were really just straight up genocidal campaigns. But what they were using for that, they would, and in some cases, they would pull the exact same units. So units who were, you know, on the so-called frontier, uh, you know, involved in these uh, these uh, campaigns to... Uh, exterminate and expel or contain indigenous populations those very same units were called back into places like chicago and pittsburgh uh, to put down this uh, rebellion of workers
0: showing very much um, as we already stated the connections between the settler colonial violence and the anti-left repression it wasn't Just police, though, um, that were involved in this violence. You detail, um, as the book moves forward, that white settler lynch mobs um, also played a role in this. And in fact, you call them in the book, quote, the cutting edge of U.S. policy for internal social control. Can you walk us through how white settler lynch mobs um, are this cutting edge? Sure. So, um,
2: yeah, I mean, a lot of what the formal forces of the state would do Was was what informal forces of the state would first do with you know these sort of settler lynch mobs and things like that. Um, So, uh, like when you know when we talk about what they you know these so called Indian wars, they weren't just fought by uh, U.S. Army regulars, but there were there were these sort of informal militias of just ordinary settlers. Um, you know, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who I, I cite in the book, has, you know, written in her, her book, uh, Loaded, a, a History of the Second Amendment, um, talks about how, like, the Second Amendment was actually, um, you know, it didn't have anything to do with, like, the kinds of things we we think it has to do with nowadays, but it was actually based on already existing policies and customs that grew out of settler colonialism. The idea was you need to have armed settlers to keep land. So I I talk about Theodore Roosevelt and how he, he wrote about that. It's not the formal forces of the state, but it's the armed settler who announces the permanent dominion of the white man. Um, That's uh, Roosevelt, uh, you know, talks about, you know, the armed settler is basically like the army can go in and sort of fight some battles, but it can't stay. So you need armed people who will stay and hold the lands. And those are armed settlers. And so, um, and so you have this whole history of just these armed settler groups, um, who are involved in these horrific, uh, ethnic cleansing campaigns. Um, and they're not seen as the state doesn't view that as mob violence, the state, you know, state actors actually see that as heroic. And they say like, well, they have to do that because the state's not strong enough there. And so these, you know, brave white men are sort of the champions of civilization because in the absence of the state, they're doing what the state would do. Um, and uh, and so, you know, one of the examples I use uh, in the book is um, the uh, Montana vigilantes um, and which were basically a, a lynch mob. And um, they they had what they call the vigilante code, which were these numbers 3777. And we don't actually know what the numbers meant. There are a number of theories. Uh, a few of them sound pretty plausible, but we don't know for sure what the actual numbers meant but uh and, like where they come from but we do know that like in uh you know places like butte montana and like some of these uh settler kind of towns um you know if there was undesirables who they wanted to kick out of town these these montana vigilantes would you know carve on their door or leave them a note or something that says the number is 377 they called it the vigilante code and um When, uh, you know, if you came home and you had the vigilante code carved on your door, you knew that it meant I have to leave town or a lynch mob is going to kill me. Um, And they took this kind of old west, uh, you know, vigilante justice type thing um, against the labor movement. So they write about how they started targeting uh, labor union leaders and, and leaders of the industrial workers of the world. Um, And there actually were a a number of lynchings against uh, members of the industrial workers of the world. Um, But uh, they they used that same number, 3777, that they would send that to the these labor leaders. Um, And. uh, uh, And nowadays, to this day, the uh, Montana Highway Patrol's badges have the number 3777 on them, the Montana police, they see themselves as sort of the the evolution of the old Montana vigilantes. What they did sort of informally, we do that formally now. We protect the property of the rich on a formal level, but it was these lynch mobs did it first. And so they actually, to this day, their badges say 3777 on them. This was the code of a lynch mob, um, military units from Montana, several military units Um, have nicknamed themselves the vigilantes and they have badges that say 3777 so that they're involved in these invasions and occupations in the middle east and in south asia and places they're going in there with their 3777 badges. It's like the continuation of the old lynch mob. Um, that's just one example. But I, I, I give several examples in the book where sort of like the lynch mobs do it first and then it, be, and then it gets institutionalized by the state. So what these sort of settlers do on an informal level, the state then institutionalizes it and does it on a formal level.
0: Hmm. And so, therefore, very much the cutting edge to understand what will become institutionalized, look at the lynch mobs, um, as that example very much demonstrates with with the badges still having the number. In our conversation so far, I think there's some pretty obvious contributions that the book is making to our understanding of this history. Um, But I want to kind of bring that explicitly to the fore and ask you to think through what you think some of the implications are from this book for labor history, but also labor movements.
2: Sure. I mean, for, uh, you know, I I never intended this book to speak only to like a specialized group of scholars. Um, but I have a few different audiences in mind. Um, I mean, I definitely do want to speak to like, you know, specialized scholars and labor and working class history and things like that. Um, but, uh, and also a more general audience, but I very much wanted to be relevant to people involved in social movement organizing. I mean, I come from sort of a social movement organizing background. Um, uh, and so, and and I, I, you know, a lot of the ways I think about things are are shaped in part by my own involvement in, in various social movements over the years. Um, but in, in terms of like, uh, for labor and working class history, I you know, I definitely think one of the important implications is uh, to center settler colonialism as we're as we're trying to understand uh, U.S. labor and working class history. Uh, we need to put that within this larger settler colonial context. We kind of, you know, in, in labor and working class history, we've been treating these as like different things like you have like. This labor stuff going on in U.S. cities, and then you have this Indian war stuff going on on the so-called frontier, but these are like treated as different stories. And I'm trying to say, no, these are the same story. These are part of the same story. Um, And one of the ways that we can sort of see it as part of the same story is when when we do use settler colonialism as a central framework for analysis then the picture uh, becomes clearer of of what's going on. Um, And then in terms of like social movements, um, uh, one of the implications that I I see of this is the importance of labor and working class organizing to have a greater um, anti-colonial consciousness um and to be in solidarity with uh people struggling against uh colonialism and and racism and things like this that that has to be uh i think that well i'm hoping that my book <sighs> this history uh helps people who are involved in labor and working class organizing understand how these these things are linked that these aren't separate issues um and that sort of, uh, and you know, the, I, I use some examples of where, of what I see as a failure of solidarity on the part of the labor movement. And I'm somebody who's been involved in, in the labor movement. I mean, I was, you know, member of a labor union the entire time I was writing the book. Um, and, uh, you know, I come from a, a family of labor union people, but, um, uh, so I'm, I'm very supportive of the labor movement, but, uh, it's not a sort of an uncritical support. I, there's, there are a number of examples in even more recent years where there's just been a failure of solidarity. So one of the examples I give was when uh, the president of the AFL, Richard Trumka, uh, you know, supported the building of the Dakota Access uh, Pipeline because, you know, on the basis that it would create jobs. And meanwhile, you know, you have this this uh, pan, you know, this historic pan-Indigenous movement trying to stop that pipeline. And here you have labor leaders stabbing them in the back Saying no, this is going to create jobs. Never mind your sovereignty. Never mind your, you know, that you're trying to protect uh, your land rights. Never mind, you know, these all this stuff about treaty rights. This is going to create jobs, and so we're going to support the building of this pipeline. Um, I think if we had a greater consciousness of the kind of history I'm writing, uh, we would understand why it's in the interest of the labor movement to be in solidarity with people like the land defenders. At Standing Rock. Um, or, you know, there were some labor union organizations that supported Trump's border wall. Again, same reason. It is going to create jobs. Uh, if we understood this history more, we would realize that it's in the interests of, of uh, w- you know, working class people to be in solidarity with Migrants who are fighting against who are resisting uh, border violence and resisting border imperialism and to oppose things like the building of border walls um, those are just two i mean there' you know two out of several possible examples, but that 's one of the things i 'm trying to point to is that we have to have the for for the the labor movement has got to ditch this um, Ditch its patriotism. I think patriotism is really holding the U.S. labor movement back, and be in, and be more internationalist, um, and be in solidarity with these struggles. And I'm hoping that the history I'm writing shows like why it's in the interests of, of of working class people everywhere to be in solidarity with anti colonial struggles and, and struggles against border imperialism and things like that.
0: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and the good news is that the book can start doing that because it is of course available for people to read. Is there anything as we close off here, is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to highlight or preview for our audience?
2: Um, sure. I mean, there's this uh, this book is actually like the, the original manuscript was like over 100,000 pages longer than what became the book. Um, had to cut it down a lot. Um, but but one of the things I wanted to discuss much more uh, in depth that um, had to do with the you had asked the question earlier about the relationship between sort of the frontier, so-called frontier lynch mob and the formal forces of the states. Um, and sort of you know that that I kind of made that assertion that you know the the mob, the white mob is you know the white lynch mob is the the cutting edge of state policy um I have a lot more to say on that, so i'm that that could possibly be a a, a next project something that that deals more with that question uh more specifically
0: hmm. All right, well, we shall have to stay tuned to see what comes next. But of course, in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, The Republic Will Be Kept Clean, How Settler Colonial Violence Shaped Anti-Left Repression, published by the University of Illinois Press. Tarek, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and sharing your expertise and time with us.
2: Thank you for having me.